2009, October 27. Today is Astronomy 141, Lecture 23, Terrestrial Worlds in Comparison. So yesterday we got a quick overview of the solar system and all of its contents, and now I want to sort of get away from that large overview and start zeroing in on particular places. We're going to take a more detailed look at different regions of the solar system, but in what we want to keep in mind while we're doing this is looking at these worlds and saying, is this some place I want to look for life or not? And the most obvious place to start with that contrast and compare exercise is on the terrestrial planets because this includes the Earth, which is an obvious point of comparison. So today's lecture is on terrestrial worlds in comparison. We're going to look at Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, and the Moon. We're going to throw the Moon in here very briefly and look at what is it makes them different? What is it that might or might not make these habitable for life? So the basic goal today is to compare and contrast the basic properties of the five primary terrestrial bodies. We're going to find the following facts. The first is that the small terrestrial planets, Mercury, Mars, and the Moon, have very old surfaces and cold, dead interiors. They're no longer volcanically or geologically active. Whereas the large terrestrial planets, Earth and Venus, have young surfaces and hot, active interiors. That's going to be the big difference between these planets, and it's dictated primarily by their size. So we're going to see. The third idea is that all terrestrial planets probably started out with the same primordial atmospheres. Even Mercury had an atmosphere. But the subsequent evolution of those atmospheres over the last few billion years has been very, very different. They've ended up in different places. And that evolution of an atmosphere is driven by a combination of three effects. The greenhouse effect, the presence or absence of liquid water, and the gravity of the planet, the ability of the planet to hold on to an atmosphere or not in the presence of its temperature from the sun. So these are going to be the, the primary considerations that are going to affect fundamentally the habitability of the, or not of the various terrestrial planets. So let's start out with just a simple overview to remind you that the terrestrial planets are the four innermost planets of the solar system. The largest two of which are the Earth, which has one Earth radius and one Earth mass. The Earth is the measure of all things in the inner solar system. Venus is a near twin sister to the Earth. It's about 95% the radius of the Earth and about 82% the Earth's mass. If you work out the numbers, the Earth and Venus are pretty close to the same density, the same basic composition. But you could not get two worlds more different. Once you get past the two large bodies, you suddenly take a big step downward in size. The third largest terrestrial planet is Mars, which is just a little over half the size of the Earth, but only about a tenth of its mass. Remember, mass goes like volume times its mean density, so it's gonna, mass is going to fall a lot faster than radius. Mars is pretty small. These are all shown, by the way, in their relative scales. So these are, you know, if you could place them all together like BBs or balls on a table, this is how big they would be relative to each other. So Mars is pretty small compared to the Earth. You really get that feeling. It's a little over half the size. Mercury is about 38% the radius of the Earth, but only about 5.5% of its mass. Because, again, it's a smaller ball. And finally, I'm going to toss the moon up down here. The moon would actually qualify as a dwarf planet if it were actually out-orbiting the sun instead of the Earth. It's a, not too much smaller than Mercury. It's down around 27% the radius of the Earth, but only about 1.2 the Earth's mass. And so that 1.2% of the Earth's mass is really, really important. So these are small spherical worlds. They're shaped by gravity. They're differentiated. 
There are going to be silicates floating on the outside and the iron and nickel and other heavy metals have sunk to the middle. So they're all very similar in that regard. They had relatively similar formation histories with the exception of the moon. The moon was basically reformed from garbage ejected off of the proto-Earth when the Earth got slammed into by what we think is about a Mars-sized chunk of junk early, early in the solar system, within the first few you know, 10, 20 million years of the solar system. So the moon is going to be a little bit different. We're probably not going to say as much about the moon here, but we are going to concentrate on the other planets. Now, if you look at the surfaces of these worlds and you say, well, what are the forces that have shaped the visible solid surfaces of the terrestrial planets? What you find is that there are three fundamental geological effects that are in play. Impact cratering, which is big rocks from the outside hitting the surfaces and plowing up material, plowing up craters. Volcanism, molten material from the inside bursting its way onto the surface and flooding out onto the plains. That molten material can either be brought up through cracks in the surface when the world is geologically active, or you can get volcanism when there's a large impact on the surface, which busts through the crust, and magma wells up from the hole you just punched in the crust. And finally, tectonism. Tectonism is basically all of the other processes which go into repaving and shaping the surface of a, of a terrestrial planet. So, for example, impact cratering. Impact cratering is important as the major shaping factor in planets only during the first billion years of the solar system, during the Hadean eon, when we had the epoch of heavy bombardment up to until about 3.8 billion years ago. So that's why I'm going to say in round numbers about the first billion years. It's really the first 600 to 800 million years in proper numbers. This is the period when the Earth, Venus, Mercury, the Moon, and Mars were getting pummeled constantly by rocks as the solar system was still in the process of forming, as the, as the last of the construction debris was slowly but surely being cleared out. And that was the dominant force that was shaping the surfaces of all five of the terrestrial planets. Then there's a difference, a split, depending upon whether you're a large world, a medium-sized world, or a small world, what forces come into play next. Impact cratering is an external effect. The other two are internal. Volcanism and tectonism are driven entirely by the internal structures of the planets. If the inside of the planet is basically molten, you can get volcanism, which is bursting a material out from underneath the hot spot. On the Earth, we also have tectonics in the sense of plates moving around or terrain being built or broken down by various forces going on inside of an active surface. In this case, it really relies on what is the interior state of the planet? Is it molten so that things can flow around? Or is it solid? Has the planet solidified all the way down to the center? Which is going to be very different. And so what, the degree to which volcanism or tectonism is going to be important on shaping a terrestrial planet's surface to this day is whether the interior is still hot enough for tectonic and volcanic processes to occur in the present day. That isn't to say they didn't occur in the past. But whether they're occurring in the present day has particular implications, for example, for the question of habitability. So these are the basic forces that are at play. So let's go through the terrestrial planets and see which of these are occurring on, on the surfaces of these planets and which were important. Let's start with the small, small bodies. Mercury, the Moon, and Mars. Now I've plotted them, shown them all the same size here just for convenience so you can see their surfaces. The first thing you notice about Mercury and the moon, and to a lesser degree Mars, but even Mars is striking, 
is how strongly cratered, how heavily cratered the surfaces of all three of these worlds are. Mars is the least cratered. Mars has had the most going on. We'll see more about Mars when we talk about it in detail on Friday. But certainly, the first thing that really strikes you when you look at the planet Mercury, from the beautiful new pictures coming back from the messenger probe, and certainly from the first really good pictures we got from Mariner 10 about 30 years ago, was that, wow, it looked like the moon. It was fully cratered from you know, head to toe, from pole to pole. The moon is also heavily cratered, although there are very large lava plains, which are called the Maria. So what we see on these surfaces are very old, very heavily cratered surfaces. These have to be more than three billion years old in terms of the average age of the rock on their surfaces. And we know that because we still see the effects of the last, the last epoch of heavy bombardment, which ended a little over three and a half billion years ago. We also see signs when you look at the details of the crust. These things all have open, clear clear-cut surfaces, is that these crusts are a single continuous piece. There are no plates like we see the tectonic plates on the Earth. It's just one big piece. Furthermore, when we do see the effects of tectonics, not necessarily present-day tectonics, but maybe past tectonics going on in them, so what we see is what's called vertical tectonism. We see stationary upwelling of material, which is pushing material up, or we see downwelling, which basically causes terrains to, to basically cave in and slump. But primarily what we're seeing is the effect of vertical motions. We're not seeing the kind of side-to-side -side stuff we saw when we looked at the tectonic plates of the Earth. So it's a real fundamental difference. The second question is, what is it that shapes the crust? What is it that gives them the terrain that they possess? And the first answer is that crustal shaping, you could form a primary crust. The very first crust you form as the planet cools is shaped entirely by impacts. So these things are still showing mostly primary crust. And the primary crust is where I see the heaviest density of craters. Mars is an exception because it has an atmosphere, but certainly on the Moon and Mercury, the effect is much more vivid because Mercury and the Moon lack an atmosphere. There's no weathering. There's no erosion to wear down the old craters or fill them in with junk, like there is, for example, on the Earth or on Venus or even on Mars to some degree. Mars to obviously a lesser degree because it's still heavily cratered, which is an interesting clue there. So these things have been shaped by their impacts, and we still see most of that shaping. There's a secondary crust, crust which is brought up, molten material brought up from the center, flows out onto the crust and then solidifies. So you kind of imagine you start with a primary base and then you have this kind of secondary crust which are lava flows. Lava flows are volcanism, whether it's welling up from the inside all by itself, like through cracks in the surface under hot, over hot spots, or even when you have really big asteroidal impacts that can punch through the crust, and well up material, that's technically volcanism following impacts. And we certainly see on bodies like the moon, you can see these dark seas, the so-called maria, are vast lava plains. We've brought back rocks from the maria, where the astronauts landed, and from the highlands, which are the older terrains, and not surprisingly, the youngest maria are a few billion years old, maybe three billion years old, whereas the highlands are more like four, four and a half billion years old. So we see this as younger material because of the radioactive age dates. So what we see across the surface is lava plains, on, or the so-called maria on the moon. When we look at, at Mercury, we also see lava plains. It's certainly be, being much more clear. There aren't as many of them, and they're not as obvious as they are on the moon. But in recently, in the last few months, analysis of images coming back from Messenger have shown something surprising, volcanic vents on the surface of Mercury. So there was actually additional hotspot volcanism of a sort going on on the planet. 
And finally, Mars actually shows hotspot volcanoes, kind of like what goes on, for example, in the Hawaiian island chain. Here's some pictures of these. On the left, this is, a this is a picture from the Messenger mission. This is during the second flyby of the planet. You can see the generally cratered terrain. There's kind of a lava plains in between. This is near a very large impact basin that flooded out with lava. And you can tell it's a somewhat younger terrain because it's got fewer craters. But what's surprising is this guy up here, this, this structure up in the top here. Whoops. Hello. Thank you. This structure up here on top looks different. Notice it doesn't look like a crater. It looks like a slumped caldera, which you see in the centers of a volcano. And in fact, it's slightly elevated compared to its surroundings, but not a lot. This is actually a volcanic vent. This is a place where molten material came up from the center, blasted out, but on the low gravity of mercury, it kind of just blew stuff all over the place rather than building up a mound in place like we would on an Earth volcano. On the right-hand side is a beautiful picture from the Mars Global Surveyor sent by NASA a few years ago that mapped out the planet. This is not so much a photograph, it's actually an altimetry, radar alt a laser altimetry map. And so what we're seeing is a section of a, of a large plane on Mars called the Tharsis Plane. What we see are, well, those are th four, five, very easily recognizable volcanoes. They have the kind of volcano cone shape that you always get. You know, have a kid draw a picture of a volcano. What do they do? They draw a peaked mountain, cut the top off, and have smoke coming out. The only thing that's missing to complete the effect is smoke coming out. We see the high conical mountains looking down from above. We see the central caldera, which is the vent where stuff comes out. It's very young terrain. There's very, very few impact craters on this terrain. In fact, the Tharsis Plain is probably about 300 to 500 million years old. I'm, I'm forgetting off the top of my head the age. So it's relatively recent geologically, but very clearly definable hotspot volcanoes, all sitting there on this high plain. And in fact, this whole place is very high altitude. This particular crater up here in the upper left-hand corner, Olympus Mons, is the largest volcanic, volcanic volcano in the solar system. To give you an idea of its sheer size, you can sort of see this cliff surrounding the volcano. That cliff is um, a few hundred kilometers high. And the entire uh, base of Olympus Mons is about the size of the state of Nebraska. This thing is huge. And the reason why it's so big is it's been sitting there building in place in the low gravity of Mars. We'll see more about that later. The large terrestrial planets are a lot different. First of all, their surfaces are a lot more complex. They've had their primary crust was shaped by, by impact cratering, but that primary crust has almost been completely erased by the fact that they have very, very act geologically active worlds. In fact, the crusts of the terrestrial planets are very young, so young that we speak of them as having tertiary, third crusts on most of the planets. So you form your first crust by impact cratering, your second crust by the subsequent volcanism following the impact cratering period, and that cools off. In the case of the Earth and Venus, there has been subsequent tectonic activity that has repaved their surfaces. Now, we already talked in some detail about the Earth. The Earth has plate tectonics. The Earth's crust is broken up into a, a series of plates, which all grind past each other, and are able to move side to side. So what we get is an effect known as lateral recycling. For example, a, one plate crashes into another plate and gets pushed down below it through the process of subduction, and that plate gets melted and recycled. The material gets younger because we reset all the little atomic clocks inside of it. 
So subduction, we have new, new crust being formed as the seafloor is spreading, as the seafloors move apart, and lava wells up into the crack to build fresh young seafloor spreading. And we can see in this little rotating globe of the Earth, we can see places where there's relatively young crust, where there are high mountain ranges being pushed up by subductive and upthrust, constantly rebuilding the crust. If we look around the Earth, the typical age of the crust of the Earth is between 100 and 200 million years old on a 4.5 billion year old planet. So we really don't see a lot of impact cratering because they've all pretty much been erased. Venus, well, Venus is covered entirely by clouds, mostly sulfur, sul, um, sulfuric acid droplet clouds and a very heavy carbon dioxide atmosphere. But we can see the surface by using cloud penetrating radar. And a, a mission called Magellan a number of years ago mapped the entire planet with cloud penetrating radar and gave us our clearest picture of the surface yet. So this little globe rotating the other way here, because Venus actually does rotate in the opposite sense as the Earth. It's got a retrograde slow rotation of about 200 days. Shows, oh, this should be the word vertically recycling is hiding behind my animation there. You can see it's got terrain. It's got wide plains and a handful of highlands. But the first thing you notice is you're missing continents and ocean basins. There are no oceans or continents really on, on Venus. Furthermore, you don't see any of these jagged lines of plate boundaries. And in fact, all indication is that Venus has a one plate crust. It's one continuous piece. Part of the reason for this is because Venus is bone dry without water and the, pl and the crustal material is a little softer in the high temperature and lack of water. And so it forms one continuous piece rather than breaking into 12 odd rigid pieces like on the Earth. So as a consequence, you're not going to get any of that lateral side-to-side -side sliding motion, and the only kind of tectonism you're going to get is this vertical recycling. Volcanoes bringing molten material up from the surface and repaving it, and then older places where the magma ch uh, chambers underneath the mantle collapse and begin to drag material down into the inside of the, of the, of the planet. So we get this vertical processing of volcanic upwelling and magma downwelling. So it's very different. We're recycling the, the, the crust. In fact, the estimated age of the surface of Venus on average is about 500 million years old. And we tell this by the lack of impact craters. Most of the impact craters on Venus have been completely erased over its geological history. So we can use the estimates of what the continuous cratering rate is. Remember from last week that asteroids and stuff are still hitting the Earth. You can estimate what that rate is. And you can tell the age of a terrain by the crater density. It's one of the tricks we're going to use a lot in the outer solar system. But what you find is something happened on Venus. We don't know what yet. Around 500 million years ago by the cratering rates to have nearly completely repaved the surface of Venus. So it was still geologically active up to a half million years ago. Half a billion years ago. Furthermore, and this is a fairly uh, controversial point now, it's some of the data from some of the, the radar passes went around multiple times. There may have been signs of present-day volcanism, but it's really hard to tell. And one of the reasons why people want to go back to Venus and send another advanced radar mapper is to really look to see if some of those volcanoes have changed shape, whether there's active volcanoes on Venus today is a question. There should be, we think there should be, but we haven't yet really caught one smoking, if you will. So here's some pictures of this vertical recycling, uh, vertical tectonism on Venus. Down here in the lower left-hand corner, you're seeing these geological structures called pancake domes. Now this is a radar image, so it's kind of funny looking in black and white. What's happening is magma's welling up under a hot spot and it's pushing the crust up. As it pushes up, it begins to crack and craze and then magma fills in slowly those cracks. Kind of like seafloor sp spreading, 
Remember, it was the two plates pulling apart and getting filled in. This is just kind of an upwelling and a push, and then kind of oozing out. So you get a place where there's, these are little places over a small upwelling place, where the sort of upward currents in the flow of the sort of semi-plastic mantle of Venus. Well, if you get upwelling, something better go down to close the loop on the circulation. And we see also structures caused by downwelling. These are called coronae because they look a little bit like crowns here. Certainly the shape is kind of like a circular crown, crown of ridges here. It's kind of an odd geological structure. We, only see, we see these on Earth sometimes. The collapsed caldera inside of a volcano is a good example of a corona when the, when the volcano has quit erupting and the magma channels collapsed a bit. We also see very large depression zones on Earth where magma channels have gotten done doing their volcanic thing and then the whole thing kind of slightly collapses a bit. So what we're seeing is downwelling. We're seeing the downward portion of this stroke. To get an idea, when we talk about the mantle and the Earth and the mantle of Venus kind of turning around, don't think about boiling like this. Think about boiling where the overturn time is measured in, te- in almost 100 million years. So this is a very slow effect. But nonetheless, we see signs on Venus through the radar imagers of serious vertical tectonism. But no plate tectonics, and that's telling us something important. So what's going on here? What is it that drives the evolution of planetary surfaces? Well, the answer turns out to be it's a combination of internal heating and subsequent cooling is what's the driver behind this. Okay. So the first stage of heating and cooling occurs when the planet forms. This is the process called differentiation. We take a bunch of rock, which has a mixture of silicates and metal, and we glom them all together, and the pressure of impact, the pressure of formation, melts that rock. That rock basically then differentiates with the light stuff floating to the top and the heavy metals sinking down to the bottom. So you start with this kind of mixture of jumbled stuff, and you end up evolving towards a metal molten core surrounded by a light mantle of silicates, and on top of that, a a thin or thick crust of solidified silicates which is exactly what we see on the Earth. And in fact, is what we see on the surfaces of all five of the terrestrial bodies. We see that they are very clearly differentiated with iron cores and silicate mantles. Whether the moon has an iron core is still kind of up for grabs. It's still a bit something we argue about. But generally, the structure is repeated. So heavy stuff sinks, light stuff floats. This process of differentiation produces heating. There's a gravitational heating that goes on, as it's called. And this is what gives you the initial temperature of the planets. And interestingly, to a first approximation, pretty close approximation, all of the five terrestrial worlds probably started out with the same basic internal temperature due to to formation. Little differences. The smaller worlds are going to start out slightly cooler than than the bigger worlds, but not by a whole lot, a lot less than you might think. So that's the first stage of keeping things hot. And the second stage is volcanism. Volcanism is when the, mol- when the mantle is still molten due to internal heating, most- mostly by a combination of radio- either radioactive decay of elements, which kind of pump extra heat into the interiors, or really heavy impacts that can actually punch into the surface and actually add impact heating to the system, gives rise to molten rock. And that molten rock flows out onto the surfaces, either through cracks or through volcanic vents like these volcanoes here in Indonesia, and forms new crust by dumping this molten stuff out where it solidifies and becomes part of the secondary crust. Now it's interesting, if you, if you take a look at the temperature of the Earth today, and you say, start it out with its differentiation energy, its formation energy, and let it cool for four and a half billion years, four and a half billion years, it's hotter 
than it should be. It's actually hotter than it would have been if it was just simple cooling. And the reason for that is the Earth is really big, and there's a lot of radioactive elements inside the Earth. As radioactive elements decay, they give up heat. We use this. In fact, radiothermal generators are used on spacecraft that use exactly the same effect. So the bigger a body is, the larger the planet, the more radioactive stuff inside, you get an additional source of heating that begins to take over as the initial heat of formation begins to fade out. If you're a small body, you have fewer radioactive elements and therefore less heating, and eventually even that can't keep up with cooling, and the body simply cools off completely. So this combination of original heat plus additional heating to kind of keep you hotter longer from radioactive decay is what now makes the structural differences between the small planets and the big planets. The other piece of important information is we have to ask, well, how long does that cooling last? How long does it take a terrestrial planet to cool off? turns out that that cooling time scales like the size of the planet. So here's, here's our dose of math for the day. We start out with a total amount of internal energy, which is basically the volume of the planet, which is going to be scale like the radius cubed, right? The, radius, the volume of the sphere is 4 pi over 3 times the radius cubed. Planet gets two times larger in radius, it's two cubed or eight times larger in volume. The more volume you have, the more energy you've got trapped inside. And T is the temperature. Is it 2,000 degrees, 3,000 degrees, whatever the appropriate starting number is. You multiply the volume by the temperature, which is kind of the energy per unit volume. That gives you the total energy you start with. Okay, So it's like your bank account. Someone comes up and without telling you puts a million dollars in your bank account. Thank you. That's nice. Tech doesn't tell the tax man. Thank you again. That's your starting point. Now, you're going to spend that energy. Okay? There's no new income at, 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 to a first approximation. So once you start with energy, everything you do is going to make you lose energy. And the way you lose energy is you radiate from your surface. A hot object in cold space loses energy by radiation. And the planet literally emits photons. It glows in the infrared. What's the rate of energy loss? Well, it depends upon the surface area of the planet, which is 4 pi times the radius squared, times this formula here, sigma, which is a constant, times temperature to the fourth power. Hot objects radiate at at an energy loss rate, which is proportional to their temperature to the fourth power. It's a very strong effect. It's called the Stefan-Boltzmann law. So I get total energy starts out at a given size, radius cubed times temperature. The loss rate is the surface area times temperature to the fourth power put these guys together, what I want to compute is the cooling time. The cooling time is how much energy you start with divided by the rate at which you're losing it. Again, the analogy. Someone gives you a million dollars, seeds your bank account, and all of a sudden you got seven digits in your bank account. Cool. Now you begin to spend it. If you spend wisely, yeah, a couple ten dollars a day, it's going to last a long time. What if you go nuts and spend a thousand dollars a day? It's going to go away faster. How much money divided by the number of dollars per day you're spending it tells you how long it'll last. So if you have a million dollars and you spend at a rate of $1,000 a day, it's going to last 1,000 days. A million divided by 1,000. If you spent $10 a day, it's going to last a million divided by 10. It's going to last for 100,000 days, which is basically more than your entire life. So you're kind kind of set. Same thing is with cooling time. This is your total energy budget to start with. And this is the rate you're spending it. Well, the total energy rate is some constant here, which we're not going to worry about. 
radius cubed times temperature divided by surface area, which is radius squared temperature to the fourth. Let's make those constants go away and do the algebra. And what I find is that the cooling time scales like directly with proportional to the radius and inversely proportional to the third power of the temperature. That's the formula. Let's put it into words that make sense. Hotter bodies cool faster than cooler bodies. A hotter body radiates energy like the fourth power. A hot body is a big spender. It's spending like crazy. It's burning through its energy very quickly. But as the temperature drops, the rate begins to tail off exponentially as the fourth power. So a big hot body is going to cool very much faster than a cooler body starts out with. So the cooling rate is not constant, but tails off in time. The second piece is this dependence on radius. Basically, the cooling time is the proportional to the ratio of volume to surface area. So a larger body, while it contains more energy, its surface area only grows like the radius squared, where the total energy grows like radius cubed. So the cooling time is going to get longer as the radius gets bigger. That's what long cooling time means slow cooling. It takes you longer to drop a degree Kelvin. So large bodies are going to cool more slowly than smaller bodies. You've all experienced this effect, or you can observe it. Take today. Today is kind of cool, right? Little skinny short people who have you know, small ratio of volume to surface area, you're, you cool by radiation, are like you know, wearing down jackets practically today. The really big guys, about 300 pounds, are still in shorts and t-shirts. Why? Because of their ratio of volume to surface area. If any of you have done time with infants, you know that babies are very, very sensitive to room temperature. Why? They're really small. Their ratio of volume to surface area is such that they cool off or heat up real rapidly. Whereas a big person's like, yeah, shorts and, shorts and sweaters, it's because it's not below zero yet. You know, that's just the way it works. Same deal. A big planet stays hot longer. A small planet cools off real fast. And the difference is purely proportional to the radius. So Mars is about half the radius of the Earth. It should cool off about two times faster. So if the Earth is still hot after, say, say it takes six billion years for the Earth to finally stop being molten in the middle, Mars stopped being molten in the middle three billion years after its formation. That's the scaling that's important. So the size of the planet matters for whether its interior is cooled and solidified or still molten. So let's now look and see what we find. So this is based on spacecraft observations. We can look at the gravity of the planet. We can look at the presence or absence of a magnetic field. We can look for various evidence of tectonism. And we can come up with a pretty good picture as to what's going on. The interiors of the small terrestrial worlds, they're smaller, they're going to cool fast, and by now they will have been mostly solidified four and a half billion years after their formation. What we expect they find is that they have a solid mantle. Because the mantle's solid, there's no more circulation, so tectonism is over. These planets are geologically dead. They have thick, very cool, very rigid crusts. And we see that because the crusts, as they begin to cool, on places like the moon or even on Mercury, we can see the crust actually cracking as the planet shrinks as it cools. We can actually see it cracking and folding. Now, it turns out that Mercury has signs of ancient volcanic vents. We can find slightly younger terrains with slightly less impact cratering. But it's pretty clear that the terrains around them are billions of years old. These things may have had volcanoes in the distant past, but those volcanoes are long since burned out, and all we see is the leftover vent. The, the vent is no longer producing anything. Mars, much bigger, probably had volcanism for a lot longer time. 
had actually much more complex tectonics, so you could build up gigantic shield volcanoes. And in fact, that's what we see. We see giant shield volcanoes across the surface of Mars on the youngest terrains. But even they stopped being geologically active maybe a few hundred million years ago. It's taken Mars a very long time to cool off, but cool off it is done. And there's still some argument about this, but Mars may in fact have a solidified interior. There's still some people who argue there may be pockets of liquid magma on Mars. It's very unclear. It's pretty clear the only way to get an answer is to go back with seismic stations and plant them all over the planet and really survey the inside of the planet. But right now, the, the general consensus seems to be that Mars is geologically dead. Cooled off, probably finished cooling off, started about a half billion years ago to the present, and has since no longer any geologic activity on the planet. So will have important implications for what the evolution of its atmosphere is going to look like. The big terrestrial planets cool much more slowly, slowly and are still hot. They're kept hotter longer because their big bodies also contain a lot more radioactive elements that can give them, from radioactive decay, give them a lot more extra heating. Now, because they're hot on the interior, they have a hot bottom with below and cool on the outside. They set up these convection currents with these kind of 100 million year overturn times. And those convection currents are what drive tectonism and drive the formation of tertiary crust to the day. On the Earth, that mantle motion, that mantle convection, coupled with the, with the rigid solid crust, has broken the crust up into what 12 odd tectonic plates, and those tectonic plates are grinding against each other laterally, driven by the convection currents in the mantle. On Venus, the, the crustal material is more plastic, it's more loose, it's not going to break, and it's not as brittle, it doesn't break into pieces, it stays as one big piece, and as a consequence, all the mantle upwelling gives you either pancake dome pushing up, or on the downwelling portion gives you the coronae collapsing below. But you still get this formation of tertiary crusts, active tertiary crusts on both of these big worlds, because they're still molten inside. Questions about the internal structure of planets and other stuff before we dive along. So that's the internal structure of planets. Okay. So, moving along, and I'll try to move through this quickly. There's a lot of words here, but we've already seen this slide back when we talked about the proto-Earth. If we go back and look at the formation of the Earth, we found that the Earth started out with a heavy primordial atmosphere of mostly carbon dioxide, nitrogen, and water vapor. If we look at the formation of the planets of the inner solar system, we expect that all of the terrestrial planets of the inner solar system probably started out about the same. They're too close to the sun to have volatiles on them because the volatiles will stay gas, it won't stay liquid. They probably got additional material locked up in formation plus additional material delivered by cometary impacts of ices coming in from the outer parts of the solar system. So as a consequence, you would, build, you would expect, just like the Earth built up a lot of volatiles, a lot of carbon dioxide and water vapor over the initial portion of its formation, so too that should have happened on Venus, Mars, Mercury, and even perhaps even on the proto-moon. So we end up forming or expect to form now on Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars a primordial atmosphere. You get a combination of volcanic outgassing when the planets are still hot and molten on the inside. You expect comet impacts and chondrite asteroids bringing in frozen volatiles, water ice and carbon dioxide ice and stuff like that. And you expect to build up initial atmospheres that are mostly carbon dioxide, nitrogen, and water vapor. So we start with the same mix of stuff. In fact, probably in the roughly the same proportions and atmospheric masses, total amount of stuff, about the same proportional to the planets. What matters, however, is what happened to them. 
Planetary atmospheres don't just sit there. They actually change and evolve. And there are three primary drivers behind atmospheric evolution. First and foremost, we've met before, is the greenhouse effect. The combination of solar heating and atmospheric cooling plus radiative trapping give you a temperature balance that determines whether water is going to be liquid, vapor, or ice on the planet. So the combination of pressure and temperature tell you what phase water is going to be. And that's primarily driven by the greenhouse effect. And we already talked about this on the Earth. Greenhouse effect on a Venus or a Mars or even a proto-Mercury would be exactly the same as on the Earth. The second determining factor is the planetary gravity. Stronger gravity means you can hold on to a hotter atmosphere. Lighter gravity means you're going to not be able to hold on to your atmosphere, and the atmosphere will literally evaporate into space. So it determines, the gravity determines the planet's ability to hold on to the hot atoms and molecules that make up its atmosphere. I can give the moon all the atmosphere at once. Its gravity is too weak to hang on to it. Finally, the last necessary piece for understanding the evolution of a planetary atmosphere is chemistry. The chemistry in particular of carbon dioxide and water. Remember, the three constituents of a primordial atmosphere that we care about are water, carbon dioxide, and nitrogen. Nitrogen just is nitrogen. It doesn't do anything interesting. But carbon dioxide and water is very important to us. Carbon dioxide is very easily dissolved in liquid water, as we saw on the Earth. If you can dissolve it in liquid water and the water stays liquid, you can get chemistry going on, which will convert your carbon dioxide into carbonaceous rocks and lock it up in the crust. So if you have a cycling where you can begin to convert carbon dioxide from gas form and lock up that carbon in other forms, you have a means by which you can change the composition of the planet's atmosphere. If you change the planet's atmospheric contribution, particularly CO2, you in turn affect the greenhouse effect. And remember, we got the carbon cycle and the carbon dioxide thermostat on the Earth. Those same processes are expected to occur in the terrestrial planets. So here's what happens today. Here's the effect of the greenhouse effect today on the, on, in the solar system. If we ask what the temperature of the Earth, Venus, and Mars would be without atmospheres, we get these numbers. On Earth, it would be below the freezing point of water, 273 Kelvin. On Venus, it's well above the freezing point of water. In fact, water would expect it to be, a, to a first approximation, liquid on the surface of Venus. And on Mars, it's 214 Kelvin, which is really cold, and water would expect to be frozen. When we add the effects of their atmospheres, we see a dramatic difference in temperature. The Earth has a lightweight atmosphere and a comfortable temperature for liquid water. Venus's atmosphere is hot and heavy with a runaway greenhouse effect, and the surface temperature is 750 degrees Kelvin, so water is not liquid, it's vapor. And on Mars, it has a poopy little greenhouse effect, if any, and even then, it can barely rise to the temperature of staying frozen. You never get liquid water on the surface of Mars. So water is in the form of liquid, vapor, or ice. In the homework problem, I ask you to work through the details of this in particular. So what do we get? Well, we get something called a runaway greenhouse effect. Let's take the Earth and increase the solar radiation. Increasing the amount of solar radiation, just turn up the sun, increases the surface temperature because I've got more energy coming in. At a higher energy air temperature, this increases evaporation. Warm air holds water vapor more. And so I begin to hold up, some of my liquid water goes into water vapor. As I get more water vapor, I get greater infrared absorption because I don't scrub out carbon dioxide, which raises the temperature. With a stronger greenhouse raising the temperature, I can put more water, evaporate more water, which puts more water into the atmosphere, 
and I set up a negative, feed, a positive feedback loop. Everything I do just makes life worse. What happens if I drive that positive feedback loop hard enough? Well, eventually I get hot enough that the oceans evaporate. They release their dissolved carbon dioxide. The crustal rocks begin to break down as they get baked by the sun and they release their carbon dioxide. And so now all that carbon dioxide I got locked up inside of the rocks and the oceans, which is 90 times the mass of our atmosphere or more, suddenly gets blown out into the atmosphere, increasing the carbon dioxide content, which increases the greenhouse effect, and the system basically runs away in a positive feedback loop. And the Earth basically starts looking like the planet Venus. So this we're going to come back to this later in the class, but I wanted to quickly introduce the idea of a runaway greenhouse effect. This equilibrium, greenhouse raising the temperature is good, but it's a slightly unstable process. And if you push it too hard in either direction, you can drive yourself to either superheating the planet or, in the case of Mars, superfreezing it. And we'll see how that works here in just a second. This aspect of size on your ability to hang on to a planet is shown on this plot. We've seen this before here. Escape speed, how fast you have to be moving to escape from the gravity of a planet vertically, and the surface equilibrium temperature due to solar heating on the vertical axis, horizontal axis. Here are the Earth, Venus, and Mars. If you're above a line given by one of these gases, your gravity is big enough to hold on to those gases. If the line is above you on this diagram, the gases will escape. So on Earth, Venus, and Mars, they're relatively warm. Hydrogen and helium escape, but they can hang on to methane, water, nitrogen, and carbon dioxide. Go down to Mercury, it loses water vapor. And the Moon, too small to hold on to either water vapor, nitrogen, or even carbon dioxide. So their gravities are too small to hang on to even the carbon dioxide, water, and nitrogen they start with. So what happens on each of these surfaces? Well, on Mercury, it's too hot, too close to the sun for liquid water to exist. It's way too hot, so water is a vapor. Its gravity is too small, so once you make that water vapor, the water vapor just evaporates literally off the planet. So the lack of liquid water means you have no carbon dioxide chemistry to set up a carbon cycle. You thoroughly shut down the carbon cycle. You get a runaway greenhouse effect. The atmosphere superheats and just blows off over the course of about a billion years. So you com combine low surface gravity with high temperature and a runaway greenhouse effect, and after a billion years, Mercury has lost all of the atmosphere it was born with, just completely gone. So the result of this is today, four and a half billion years after formation, Mercury has no atmosphere whatsoever. It's basically just completely airless. There's a little bit of gas trapped from the solar wind, but that's it. So Mercury looks like this sort of cartoon today. It's an airless, moon-like world with no atmosphere and the sun shining hotly in the sky. Its atmosphere is gone. It started out with an atmosphere, but it lost it really quickly through a combination of runaway greenhouse effect heating and a low gravity, so it couldn't hold on to that hot atmosphere. Venus is different. Venus is really big. Okay? So Venus is also going to turn out to be too hot for liquid water. Liquid water wants to mostly be in, a, a, in the vapor phase. But it's really big, so its gravity can hold on to that hot atmosphere. Now, it may turn out that early on in the formation of Venus, Venus may have had oceans, may have actually had rain out of liquid water and started a carbon cycle up. But the problem was it was just too hot and you got into that runaway greenhouse effect situation where the temperature just kept rising to where water could no longer be liquid. 
Now, the gravity is strong enough to hang on to that hot atmosphere, but the carbon dioxide stays in the atmosphere. It can't go into the rocks because we shut down the water chemistry. And all the water vapor that you do get floats to the top of the atmosphere. A UV photon hits a water vapor, and it breaks into an oxygen and a hydrogen molecule. The hydrogen molecule is really hot, and it goes whing, off into space. So the hydrogen escapes, and you get oxygen. Oxygen is extremely reactive, and it grabs the nearest open molecule and reacts with it to form an oxide. In fact, probably what it mostly formed with an oxide with is sulfur. In fact, sulfur dioxide and hydrogen sulfide, I'm sorry, hydrogen sulfide, sulfuric acid, excuse me. Sulfuric acid are the primary droplets in the clouds of Venus. Venus's clouds are not water droplets. They're sulfuric acid droplets, H2SO4. That's where all the oxygen went. So the hydrogen's gone, the water escaped. The water, basically Venus is bone dry. So today, four and a half billion years later, Venus is hot, 750 degrees Kelvin. You can almost melt lead on the surface of Venus. Bone dry, there's no water anywhere. And it's got a very heavy carbon dioxide atmosphere because there's no way for the carbon dioxide to be locked up in crustal rocks. It's all in the atmosphere because you had no water chemistry shutting it down. So... Same starting point, but a very violent, very violently hot place for due to a runaway greenhouse effect. The Earth, a little different. The Earth was warm enough for abundant liquid water due to the greenhouse effect, and it was large enough to hang on to its atmosphere. Because the water was liquid, well, we, we know the story. We get the locking up of carbon dioxide and crustal rocks in the oceans. The atmosphere gets scrubbed of carbon dioxide. You leave behind nitrogen. Plant life evolves, starts pumping out oxygen, and pretty soon we get the nice, warm, moist nitrogen-oxygen atmosphere that we all know, love, and breathe today. So we don't need to go over this in detail because we've already been here. This is just an illustration slide. What about Mars? Mars's atmosphere may have been warm enough due to a heavy greenhouse effect early in its history during the first billion years, but its gravity is too low to hang on to the atmosphere. Some of the carbon dioxide probably got locked up in the carbonaceous rocks, and we're finding lots of evidence of past water from the Mars rovers that we'll talk about on Friday. However, as Mars began to cool, water began to transition from liquid to solid. It froze out. Once you freeze the water, you shut down the carbon chemistry. You freeze it up in saturated rocks, and so you're left with carbon dioxide and nitrogen in the atmosphere, with carbon dioxide still the primary element. The carbon dioxide and nitrogen escapes from Mars's weak gravity, aided by the solar wind, because it has virtually no magnetic field, and so the atmosphere slowly evaporates off. And so today, Mars has a cold, dry, thin carbon dioxide atmosphere. So we've got four starting points, all the same, four very different endpoints, depending upon their distance from the sun, how hot or cold they are, the strength of the greenhouse effect, and the strength of their gravity. So where do we want to look for life? And that's a question we're going to pick up in subsequent lectures. See you all tomorrow.